Good afternoon, everybody. This is the graveyard shift, as you know, a tough time for anybody, tough for the listener, tough for the speaker. So let's um, ask the Lord to help us with maximum volume <laughs> and much grace. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads again. Father, thank you for this lovely day. Thank you for the fellowship with you and one another. We thank you for the food and the plenty in our rooms. And we thank you for the beautiful sky, the trees, uh, all that is around us. And we thank you too for the gift of your word, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we pray that you'd help us now, that uh, this would not fall to the ground, uh, but it would uh, find good soil and bear fruit to your praise. Again, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give to us. What we are not, please make us. For Jesus' sake, amen. So uh, we're turning, friends, to 1 Timothy 3 and 4. If this sounds ridiculous, we will um, just take it as a leadership session, um, a look at leadership. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to look at 5 and 6, which is a really a, a priorities session. So there is a theme in three and four and a theme in four, uh, in five and six. Um, do you remember the book Point Man by Steve Farrer that came out many years ago? And he tells a lovely story of this um, photographer who's rung up by his boss. And the boss says to him, get to the airport quickly. There's a bushfire. We want you in the air. We want you to take photos of the bushfire immediately, ASAP. Do you remember this story? And uh, the photographer races to the airport, sees the plane on the tarmac, jumps in and says to the pilot, okay, let's go. And the pilot takes off. And as they're in the air, the, the photographer says to the pilot, I want you to move over to the bushfire and I want you to dive down above it. And uh, when the pilot has dived down above it, he says, now up again, I want a high shot. Now swing to the left, now down again, swing to the right, down again, up again. And the pilot turns to him and says, this is my second flight ever. Are you sure that you're my instructor? It's a, it's a great moment uh, of somebody hopping into the wrong plane. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because when we think about 1 Timothy 3 and the priorities of leadership, it can, of course, be quite chastening for us. And when we think about chapter 4 and the godliness of being a pastor, it can be quite chastening. But when we think about why God would talk about this, it's so that the person who's exercising the leadership, whether it's the leadership of the Sunday school or the youth group or the church or the home group, has been thought through carefully. Because a pilot in a plane, especially a 747, has got a very serious role to play. But a person in spiritual leadership has got an eternal role to play. And we know how easy it is to get somebody in who shows themselves not to be up to the work and how difficult sometimes it is to get them out. We've seen in 1 Timothy chapter 1 the message. We've seen in 1 Timothy 2 the meetings. And now we come to the right leadership in 3 and 4. Uh, not only does the leadership impact everything, but these qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and 4 are suitable for all Christians, but especially for leaders. And I've called this talk The Rock in the Pond because in the end, the leader of the ministry or the mission 
drops, as it were, like a rock in a pond, whether they're leading the Sunday school, the youth, or the small group, or the church itself, and their influence is increasingly felt for good, praise God, and uh, occasionally for ill. Um, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, if you open it up and I'll read it with you, uh, also moves outwardly. So it begins by talking about the heart, then it talks about the home, then it talks about the church, then it talks about basically how the person is perceived in the world. So there is an outward move, even in these seven verses. So I'll read 1 to 7, familiar verses to us, but uh, stay with me if you can. It's warm in here, isn't it? Do we think the heating is on? Can we open that door? That'd be wonderful. Yeah, please. How was it Spurgeon who said uh, what we need is grace and oxygen for the work? Yeah. I think it's in, in one of his lectures. He describes the breaking of some windows in his church, uh, which he subtly confesses to having done with his walking stick. <laughs> Lovingly broke the windows for the sake of the listeners. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. Uh, Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. (coughs) If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgments as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so he'll not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, I don't know if you notice, but there is an outward move there, Uh, beginning with what the heart of the leader wants, moving to the home, as I say, moving to the church, moving to the world. So um, let's think of these uh, verses 1 to 7 under the heading of godly leadership. And you know, of course, that the pastoral epistles don't give a denominational blueprint. The wonderful thing about the pastoral epistles is that they'll tell you that you can go to Crete and have a Bible and the Lord with you and look for leaders, and that's about it. Everything else is, if it's wise, it's permissible. So you won't find the Presbyterian, the Anglican, the Baptist blueprint in the pastoral letters. In the Greek, these verses are 60 words. In the NIV that I've just read, there are 120 words. So Paul actually says this originally very tightly. Uh, And it's the second trustworthy saying, chapter 3, verse 1. The other four, I think, all have to do with salvation. This one has to do with leadership, which makes you wonder, don't you, doesn't it, whether the leadership and the salvation are very closely aligned. Because the trustworthy sayings seem to be highly significant sayings. Well, chapter 3, verse 1, to aspire to oversight, the word is the episkopos word, Around look, episkopos, episcopal, it's the overseer word. And incidentally, the Anglicans uh, will say that they get their, their bishop role from the fact that a Timothy or a Titus 
has oversight of a lot of churches or a lot of country, whether you can obviously find that in the text is debatable. But obviously, I think we can say Timothy and Titus are not being given responsibility for one local church. They do have oversight. And Paul says to aspire to oversight is a noble task. Now, hopefully, if you're aspiring to this, it's not because you want to dress up like an Anglican idiot or because you want to wear fine jewelry or something like that. Um, I hope it will be because you want to be a shepherd and see people found and fed. Obviously, as I say, Timothy seems to have this role and he needs to find more leaders. So he's to begin, verse 2, looking for people who are above reproach. What does above reproach mean? We all know this. It means that a person shouldn't have alarm bells go off when their name is mentioned. Uh, We were talking earlier today with, uh, I think, with um, Andrew and Lydia about the possibility of bringing the word but into a sentence. You're just about to say something good and then in comes the word but. And when it comes to the leader, Paul is saying it would be good if you can find somebody where you don't have to bring in the but there is a problem. That's the above reproach. Calvin says it's not possible to find a man or woman who's faultless, but he must not be tainted with any disgrace or blackened by scandal that might detract from his authority or influence. Very wise words. You won't find the faultless person, but you don't want somebody who will uh, put barriers to the work. And it's always better to err on the side of slow when you're choosing somebody rather than put somebody in quickly. And we all know the challenge of this because suddenly somebody has resigned a scripture class and there's a scripture class waiting to be taught. Someone's resigned a Sunday school and you just quickly find someone and put them in. And uh, if you're going to do that quickly, you might uh, have some kind of clause where you say, let's do this for four weeks and see how it goes. Um, Because getting a person out may be necessary. When I used to study at Moore College in the 70s, the mid and late 70s, when things were not so litigious, every now and again, you may have experienced this, you'd come across a student who just didn't seem to be a people person at all. And you would wonder how this person could really go into ministry. And what was interesting in the 70s was that if you had this kind of hunch or fear you could be pretty sure that the lecturers would have it as well. And some private conversation would take place. And the next thing, sadly, you'd see the removal truck uh, turn up outside the place and everything would be piled in and he'd be taken away. And no real discussion or explanation was given. But I think there were times where we thought this person is either going to have to have a revolution to be a people person or they're going to be very, very awkward in a, in a local church. Paul goes on to say, husband of one wife, implying that this leadership is male, someone who ideally understands covenant faithfulness. Um, of course, um, this verse brings a lot of grief to many people who have not adequately, not sufficiently, not percentage-wise contributed to the breakdown of a marriage but nevertheless have seen their marriage break down. Um, But three, two is a wise test, isn't it? Is the person a covenant man with his wife? Because if he's a good covenant man, 
He's going to probably be a good gospel man. And it is so much more difficult. I hope I'm not treading on any toes, but it is so much more difficult, isn't it, to talk about commitment, faithfulness, <coughs> bonding, one flesh, forgiveness, progress, if everything has fallen apart. Then there are some things to tick off from chapter 3, verse 2. And the one thing that we need to notice if we're going to tick these off is that we're going to have to sit with the person and maybe the family and maybe the church and maybe the friends in order to be able to do this. So the first thing is that they ought to be temperate or sober or steady or balanced. They're not explosive people. Well, you're not going to be able to work that out from an interview. <laughs> it always astounds me when people say that they've had an interview and they've now worked out that somebody is really nice and really orthodox. That's not going to tell you a lot. <coughs> They're to be self-controlled, says Paul, sensible, dignified, not unpredictable. They're to be respectable, orderly, organized. Their life is not chaos. Hospitable, literally love for strangers, which could mean the home is being used greatly, or it could mean that they're very good with the person who's not part of the club, but is just being welcomed and looked after. They're not to be a drunk, dependent or addicted to substances. They're not to be violent, literally a striker, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And they're not to be greedy, a lover of silver. Now, you might think when you go into the ministry, there's no point in talking about this because you're not going to be making a lot of money compared to some people. But let me tell you, there are all sorts of games that people play in pastoral ministry. And uh, I've had people work on the staff with me who have been thinking money, money, money way too much. And um, we've got to be careful of this one as well. So Paul, you see, is skillfully um, guiding the checklist so the church is not uh, damaged or derailed, especially as God wants people to be saved. And if everything explodes, you know. Just think of some of the sad cases of recent months and years where everything falls apart and it is so much more difficult for that church with a high profile to keep doing what it's been doing. So the devil just loves this kind of disaster. And what Paul is putting in place here is the best we can do in ensuring it doesn't take place. Uh, do we need to be reminded this is important? I don't think we do. Uh, Paul is not here talking about the appearance of the guy or the charisma or the business skills or the music skills or the sense of humor. He's looking for somebody godly. And uh, I always remember Philip Jensen used to say that if you have to hand over ministry to somebody, try and hand over the ministry to somebody who's theologically at least as conservative as you. Because if you compromise at this level, you could just see the trajectory change dramatically. And if you've got to choose a treasurer and you've got a choice between the bank manager, who's basically nominal, or you've got the, remember the bank teller? Do they still have bank tellers? <laughs> Who is godly? Better to go with the bank teller because the godliness of the person put into place is going to be increasingly seen to be worthwhile. 
The gift in this section is apt to teach because the church family needs to be fed. And without food, there is a spiral downwards. I've worked with a pastor in the past who prepared his sermons at quarter to seven in the evening, and they always sounded like they'd been prepared at quarter to seven. And um, I've watched a church spiral downwards when the food is bad and then people become unclear and then pastoral difficulties arise and the pastor is more frantic and there's less preparation and there's more problems and there's less preparation and everything spirals downwards. But when in place is somebody who's got convictions about praying and preaching, not to the expense of doing anything else, but at least not losing those two things, there can be a spiral upwards where people become clearer they start to share the pastoral load. The pastor is set apart to prepare properly and things can actually move upwards. And that's extremely important. And the key is the person who's got the convictions to stay with what's important, which is the food of the church. Calvin, again, attacking the man who aspires to the job without the ability to teach, says, as if a pointed mitre or a ring with jewels, or a silver cross will do. This empty display is not the way to spiritually help the church, and he's absolutely right. So we need someone who gets the word right, and that's what I hope you guys are working on, getting the word right, and then we need to work on getting it across. Those are the two priorities of the little Cornhill course that I have a small part in. Cornhill helps people to handle the Bible, and it's a one-day course held on a Tuesday in Sydney and a Thursday in the western suburbs of Sydney, mostly for lay people, but it's been a stepping stone for many to go into theological college. And the two aims of Cornhill are get the passage right, get the passage across, because some people will get it right, but they don't get it across. Some people will get something across, but they didn't get something right. And we need, of course, the two. Um, I was going to say something to you about this before we leave the subject about um, the teacher. Um, but I've uh, put in my notes here the question as to whether you know there are places where you can take somebody who's a seeker and they will hear God's word told. And whether that church is a place that people are happy to bring to, that's the thing to work for, isn't it? We want people to come and be fed, but we also want them to think this is where I could bring. And I've often said, and I'm only talking about principles here, I've not been able to practice this perfectly, but I'm thinking as I prepare of Trent, who's never come to church before and he's up the back with his girlfriend, and the professor who's been here for years, and I'm trying to prepare with the two of them in mind because I figure if Trent will come with me, I'm pretty sure I'll get most of the others. But it's not going to be so simplistic that the professor who's been coming forever is deeply disappointed. Is it possible to do plain and profound? I think it is. It's possible to do plain and profound. Now, when it comes to getting the passage right, let me just try a couple of things with you before we move on. And that is, if you're going to preach, I'm, I've often used this example, and you'll forgive me if you've heard me say this before, but you know that lovely little parable in Luke 18, 1 to 8, 
where Jesus teaches that the disciples should pray and not lose heart. Do you remember that? And there's a parable of, do you remember? A judge and a widow. Now, how are you going to preach or teach that parable of the judge and the widow? Imagine you're running a home group or you're teaching at the youth group or the Sunday school class or you're preaching it as a sermon. If you think the parable is a comparison sermon, what you're saying is you've got to be like the widow. And if you've got to be like the widow, what you're saying is you've got to be prepared to keep, 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 keep knocking. But the problem with that is that you're comparing God to the judge as if to say he's hard to get through to. If, however, it's not a parable of comparison, but it's a parable of contrast, then what Jesus is saying is God is not like that judge. You know that. His ear is attentive to the cry of his people. And therefore, you're not like the widow. You don't have no access. You have access. That'll be a very different sermon, won't it? If it's a comparison sermon, your sermon will be something like this. Do you want to really go somewhere in the Christian life? You've got to improve your prayer life. You people who are giving minutes to your prayer life, no wonder nothing's happening. You need to give hours to your prayer life. Let me give you an illustration of Charles Simeon and John Wesley. And all your congregation will sit there getting utterly depressed at this. And one or two of them will bravely get up the next morning at five o'clock and try to pray for two hours. And then they'll fall asleep and they'll give up the next day. But if you're preaching a contrast sermon and you're saying, here's some good news for you. God is not difficult to get through to. And you have been given access through the Lord Jesus to his very throne. And actually, you can speak to him in the day or the night and he will hear you. That's an encouraging sermon. Somebody might say at the end of that, gee, I might go back to my prayers. Okay. I can see one or two falling asleep. See if you can stay with this as we go to chapter 3, verses 8 to 16. Chapter 3, 8 to 16. Um, I have put some chocolate out there in a bowl if you'd like to help yourself in the middle of this talk. Chapter 3, verse 8. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And let's go to the last three verses. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Okay, so this is faithful servants, and every church has wonderful servants, whatever you want to call them. Uh, these are not pastors, these are not the regular teachers, but almost nothing works without these wonderful people in the admin area, in the money area, in the technology area, in the children and youth area, in the music area. We couldn't do without them. But Paul says, even they should be chosen carefully. And he deals from verse 8 with the men, and he deals in verse 11 with the women. Again, verse 8, the men are to be worthy of respect and sincere, not given to drink, doctrinally sound. In other words, they're on the same page as the church. That's a good test, isn't it? <coughs> It's not a bad thing to ask a few questions before somebody's put in place. 
What's your view on this? What's your view on this? What's your view on women's ministry? Will there be a clash? What's your view on the charismatic issues? Will there be a clash? And then verse 11, and this is, I think, the female deacon or the deaconess. He's not talking, I think, wives here because he didn't talk about overseers' wives. And Paul also commends godly women for the role. So watch the life, watch the home. Do you notice again how the home and the church are being linked? It's in chapter 2, it's in chapter 3, and it's in chapter 5. The home and the church are to be carefully joined. Now, verses 14 to 16, fascinating verses, because Paul says why he's writing. And he's writing, he says, not to tell people about life in the building, but what does our verse say? Life in the household, the family. So there's no instructions in the pastoral letters about baptism. There's nothing about communion. There's nothing about healing. There's nothing about liturgy. There's nothing about choice of songs, although there's a little bit in Ephesians and Colossians. Because in the end, the Apostle Paul is interested in the priorities. How God's family, the church, can be a pillar and a foundation. It's a very interesting combination. The pillar means the church is holding up the truth. And the foundation means that the church is a place, let's say a family, where people can come and build their lives. So he's wanting the family of God to be holding up the truth and also, uh, as it were, a foundation for people to grow in. Now, how does the church hold up the truth? I think this is a very practical issue, and I had to wrestle with this at North Sydney because when I was at North Sydney, we had the Pacific Highway running down one side and we had the Gore Hill Freeway running down the other side. There was a CBD at one end. There was a football ground here. Um, there were some blocks of units a bit further away, but it was not a little village place. And even though St. Thomas's North Sydney is a big Gothic cathedral building in beautiful grounds, we were not really in a prime position to draw attention. Uh, I look at some places where the church is beautifully placed in the middle of the suburb, the town, the village, and they've got an opportunity to say something. We didn't have that opportunity. So how does the church hold up the truth to the community? I want to suggest to you, friends, it's not going to be the gathering so much. We mustn't keep waiting for all the cars that drive past to hear us singing, stop their car and come piling in. You'll wait a long time for that. But when the gathered church, having been fed and uh, encouraged, scatters, the people of God are holding the truth up in so many places, places that we would never reach. The nurses are holding up the priorities of God's word, the teachers are holding up, the, the women in the community, the men in their business, the women in their business, the men in the community, they're holding up the truth of God as if like a pillar. And now the truth, verse 16, is all about Jesus. And it looks like 316 begins with Christmas. He appeared in the flesh. I immediately thought Christmas. But then it gets hard to read the verse if you start with Christmas. He appeared in the flesh, Christmas, was vindicated by the Spirit. Okay, that makes sense. Spirit comes on in baptism. Seen by angels. Yes, I suppose so. Preached among the nations. We've suddenly jumped ahead. 
believed on in the world, we've suddenly jumped ahead, taken up in glory. It's an unusual sequence. But if the first line has to do with the resurrection, it actually follows quite carefully. Appeared in the flesh, raised from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached, believed, taken up in glory. Does that make sense? It could be that 316 is a resurrection text, not so much a Christmas text. Okay, still with me? We go to chapter 4 very quickly. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> um, I wanted to tell you that I'm working at a little church in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and I have mentioned this to some of you that I've sat with, but uh, it's a building that holds 600 people. Uh, I went there 18 months ago to fill in as a locum. Uh, I found 40 people. Uh, five of them were male. I didn't find any of the males to be believers. 35 women, almost all over 75, 80, maybe five women believers. Uh, I inherited this being recorded. <laughs> anyway, it's been a tricky place. You know, secretary, not a believer, organist, not a believer, choir, not believers, wardens, not believers. And um, there I am, you know, saying, well, here's the Bible. And they're thinking, we're not interested. And uh, I'm speaking my sermon, and they're like this. And then at the end of the day, there's nothing to talk about. And uh, it's been a very strange time. And I feel as though, having been in the ministry for a long time, this is probably the biggest challenge. The previous church was a challenge because I came into a very traditional place with four Book of Common Prayer communion services, quite a high church. But there were people waiting and keen and prayerful. This is a very different place. And I'm telling you that because I don't want you to think that I have a little magic wand or have ever done anything well. Um, we're just in this together. So chapter 4, let's read 1 to 10 very quickly. Uh, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying. Is it number four? Three? Number three? That deserves full acceptance. And that's why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God, who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So we need, uh, we need um, pastoral wisdom here. Um, I pause to tell you a, a cheesy joke. Uh, do you know the story of the young minister who goes to the very difficult town which is run by two mafia brothers? Have you heard this story before? So a young minister goes to a very tough part of town run by two mafia brothers, and soon after he arrives, one of the mafia brothers dies, and the other one comes to him and says, you'll take my brother's funeral, you'll say he was a saint, or we will kill you. So the young pastor thinks to himself, what will I do? Will I say he was a saint and be a liar? Or will I tell the truth and get killed? 
And uh, come the day of the funeral, there's the whole place packed out. Every crook in town is present. And he stands up and he says this. He says, well, today we've come to remember a man who was basically a liar, a cheat, a thief, a crook, a drunk, and a nasty piece of work. But compared with his brother sitting over there, he was a saint. <laughs> and that, my friends, is pastoral wisdom. That's where you think and come up with something. And uh, you'll see in chapter 4, verse 1, that despite good leadership, chapter 4, verse 1, and despite good doctrine, chapter 3, some will leave the church. You've got to get used to this. Uh, there are times where someone will come and resign, and I was advised as a young man, accept all resignations with a smile. I've just been so grateful for that piece of advice. If you try and talk somebody into staying and you compromise and you do backflips, you can just give yourself a, her a hernia, a heartache. Um, but there will be people who will leave the church. And uh, the Spirit says this will happen. Well, where did the Spirit say this will happen? Does this mean a direct word to Paul? The Spirit spoke to him. Or is it something that Paul said earlier in Acts 20, that there will be wolves coming in? who will attack the flock, yes. Or is it something Jesus said, that there will come a time, Mark 13, where there will be great disruption in the church? And I guess all are possible. All are possible. But we've been warned, haven't we? And so we have to be ready for people to leave. It's always sad, especially when people up and move to other parts of the world and you lose great people and great families, especially when they go for silly reasons. And uh, you may have noticed that some people take up very expensive and well-paid jobs in other places where there is no church, no fellowship, and it has terrible consequences. They think it's going to be paradise, and it ends up being something much worse. So Paul lifts the lid on these false um, ideas in verses 1 and 2, and he says it's not a sudden thing often. It's got to do with demonic activity at the back of it which produces a seared conscience, which produces lies. So you get something which is dishonest in your face from somebody whose conscience is seared and behind it is a demonic battle going on, a demonic battle. And uh, Abraham Kuyper said that the spiritual battle makes all world wars look like fights in the playground. It's a great reminder to us. I was going to tell you about a man, well, I will tell you about a man called Thomas Oden, who was an American theologian, died in 2016. For 40 years, he denied the faith, and an Orthodox Jew challenged him one day that he did not know what he was talking about. And he went back to the original documents, and he realized that he did not know what he was talking about. And he says in his autobiography, this is a little window into the dishonesty and the depravity of a false teacher. And he had been a false teacher. And he says this, this is how honest he was when he came to the Lord and to the faith. I loved the illusions. I did not examine my motives. In the, the biblical word for my behavior is egocentric, arrogant, and blind. And he says, I had been in love with heresy I was now waking up to the orthodoxy that I had dismissed and I became more relevant suddenly, not less relevant. I found myself singing with the saints in the celestial choir. It's a great confession, isn't it? It's a little piece of honesty 
from somebody who's played the game of being dishonest. Well, in verses 3 to 5, the people that Paul is thinking of need testing. And you can test them, says Paul, with two simple tests. One is the test of creation. What are they denying and why are they denying normal things? Because, says Paul, sometimes weirdos will deny very good things. And he uses the example of marriage and food for which they should be receptive and grateful. Why do people play games by bringing in a rule about marriage or food or something like that? Often it is simply one-upmanship, a desire to be slightly superior. I have moved into a higher level of godliness. I do not stoop to this. I do. I no longer do this or take this. And the Apostle Paul says that is sometimes a giveaway that the person is not taking seriously what God has given and is playing a game with the congregation, which again divides the congregation and messes up the mission. And then the other test, verse 6, is revelation. Where does the person get their ideas Because Paul says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching you followed. Where do people get their ideas from? Verse 7, godless myths, old wives' tales. Are people able to point to the text for the reason that they're going down some strange path? And often the answer is no. In the face of such foolishness, the good minister, the good servant, nourishes themselves, verse 6, on the truth of God. In other words, we feed ourselves, I hope you do. Exercise yourself, which of course is remembering this world and the next, not just this world. And then verses 9 and 10, and you work yourself because you labor and strive. So feed yourself, exercise yourself and work yourself. Uh, Not overwork, but uh, Paul talks about the difficulty of the task. And you know from his 2 Timothy letter that he likens ministry to soldier, athlete, and farmer. You know, he doesn't talk about cross-stitcher, barista, and gym instructor. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. And of course, the layperson sometimes looks at the pastor and thinks, what does this guy do? You know, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. All he does is drink, (laughs) just drinks tea with little old ladies and then gets up and rabbits on. But actually, if you try in your strength to go forward spiritually or to get someone else to go forward spiritually, you'll fall apart. It's a very difficult task. Well, notice again in verse 10, the scope of God's interest. Salvation is offered to all people. Obviously, it's enjoyed by those who believe. And if you are seeking to do these things, verse 6, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says you're a good minister, and I know you are seeking to do these things. And Paul says, because God says you're a good minister for doing what you're doing. You don't need somebody else to tell you. God says... You're a good minister because you're doing the work of truth and love and praying and proclaiming. Well, how important, therefore, it is to concentrate on faithfulness, not success. Remember that little lady in Mark 14 who came and anointed Jesus' feet and Jesus said to his disciples, she did this for me 
and she did what she could. What a liberating view. She did it for me, she did what she could. So often we need to say to the people in our churches, don't we? You did this for the Lord, you did what you could. God bless you. No more pressure. Well, the last verses, 11 to 16, uh, again, I'll just read these to you and then we'll finish. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Obviously, Timothy is. But set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Don't neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere, because if you do, you'll save yourself and your hearers. So uh, Timothy is young, what was he, 25, 30, we don't really know. But you don't have to be immature to be young. Is that the right way to put it? You don't, if you're young, you don't have to be immature. And um, young does not mean irrelevant. I became a senior minister at 31. I look back with absolute horror at the older, wiser, better, bigger, stronger, clearer, finer people who sat there listening to a dope in the ministry. And um, we serve sometimes in our youth, don't we? But Paul says there is a way to do it. Ageless wisdom here. We're not wanting to be patronized by people. We're not wanting to be precocious. He says, verse 12, set an example. Set an example in your speech. Watch it. Life. Watch it. Love. Watch it. Faith. Watch it. Holiness. Watch it. It's very hard to look down on a godly young person. It is hard to look up to an ungodly old person. Then says Paul, verse 13, identify your authority in the church. Make sure that everybody knows that what we're coming to is the word of God. It isn't the clever graduate from the Bible college. It isn't the old pastor who's full of stories. It's the word of God that we're coming to. And uh, therefore, we're not just reading the Bible on Sunday to fill in time so that the hour gets filled in. And we're not doing it just to bore people with a long piece of scripture. We're doing it because it is our food. It is our authority. And uh, you may know those people who read the Bible excellently. And what a blessing they are. John Blanchard tells the story in his commentary on James that uh, as a young man, he would work for hours and hours and hours to get the passage right for his Bible reading the next Sunday. Practice commentaries, practice commentaries, practice commentaries. He said there were many times where I would read the passage and people would tell me afterwards that they were ready at the end of the reading to go home and do business with God. And so we can always help our readers to uh, think carefully about what they're doing and make it a very special time. Verse 14, use your gift. Uh, if Timothy is able to teach, and no doubt he is, and if he is a good teacher, applying verse 6, the truths of God, then he has a, a wheel in his little boat which he must guard. And if you've got a wheel, which is the pulpit, for the word of God, 
guard it and look after it because it's possible from that pulpit and from that wheel to, to have a very good influence. And I don't need to tell you that there are people probably listening to your talks who you don't know about, but they are listening to your talks. And you can travel and discover that people have found you and are listening to you. And therefore the influence uh, to keep working in the base where God has given you and to set an example perhaps for others and to help your people be glad they come and bring, if possible, has a trickle-down effect which is beyond belief. And therefore, use your gift, guard it well. Be consistent, he says, verse 16, in your life and doctrine. There's always a gap between what we know and do, sadly, but we're aware of the gap between what we know and do. The hypocrite says there is no gap. The honest believer says there's a gap. I wish there wasn't such a gap. Lord, help close the gap. And when Paul says we're going to save ourselves and our others, he obviously doesn't mean save ourselves and others from their sins, but he means we're going to save ourselves and others from many troubles, from many dangers. Well, when people leave, says Paul, or create trouble, you keep teaching the truth. I had a group in the church in the western suburbs of Sydney who had a magic weekend. There were 30 or so when I arrived and they took people away to a magic weekend. And at the magic weekend, they all fell in love with Jesus. And then they came back to the church and they pulled out of everything the church was doing. And they spent their time Sundays just moving around the morning tea, bringing people into the list that would go away to the magic weekend. And I found it a very distressing thing. I didn't really know what to do. And uh, I met with them and they were older and um, they were feistier than me. And uh, I wasn't really sure where to go. And in the end, we said our prayers and kept preaching the truth and especially applied to this particular area. And after a while, the whole group left in one mass. It was a blessed reduction. And within months, the group was completely replaced. I'm not suggesting that will always happen, but I'm just saying that there are times where people will get up and go. There are times where we have to persevere with what we've got. And like a godly Christian couple who are keeping on asking the question, how godly can we be? The pastor has to keep not asking the question, how much can I get away with? But how godly can I be? There is more to life, isn't there, than coffee, Netflix, travel, and a bed. And we have to keep reminding people. Okay, I might pray a short prayer and then we'll stop everybody. You've been very patient. And for the two of you who looked alert from start to finish, God bless you. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Let's pray. Our Father, as we um, consider these verses so quickly together, we're conscious of the great wisdom which is in your word and your concern for a healthy church and a missional work. And we pray that you would, in mercy and power, help us to walk in the wisdom of your word, that you would protect us and protect your people and help us increasingly to do the truths which we've been looking at for the good of the church, for the good of the world, and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.